0: To go back and summarize, save, so pay yourself first, buy assets once you've filled up that buffer fund, whatever's left over, put that into assets that are going to pay you so that you can then work less and become time rich, and then avoid bad debt if you can. That's borrowing to buy liabilities. That's it. In
1: 1837, Horace Mann created the Education System, a system at the time designed to pump out factory workers and professors. The same system that is still being used today in the 21st century. Now, man's system is backfiring. We are being molded by the same industrial system that has existed for close to 200 years. That system delivers us into a digital economy that has no need of our outdated skills. This isn't our teacher's fault. This isn't the government's fault. This is due to a rapidly changing world full of technology and unforeseen circumstances. And us Gen Zs are caught in the middle. Welcome to the Driven Young Podcast, the podcast for stressed, overwhelmed young Australians teaching you practical life skills you can implement now to set yourself up in life. And now your host, Byron Dempsey. Welcome back to the Driven Young Podcast and today we are doing another money and finance episode. The number one skill people wish they were taught in school, how to manage their money. I love doing episodes like this and it is such an important skill and this episode is such a great all-rounder. If you are bad with money, then this episode is for you, because today I'm joined by Lacey Philippinch. Saving half of every dollar she received from age 10, she bought her first property at 19 years old, while in her second year of chemical engineering. She continued investing throughout her 20s, adding shares and more properties to her portfolio to reach financial independence in her early 30s. This isn't rocket science, guys. She didn't earn any more money than you. She didn't earn any more money than your parents. She didn't invest into crypto or anything fancy that just went crazy. This was done using simple habits, investing long term into relatively safe assets, and understanding the power of delayed gratification. Lacey now runs a company called MoneySchool.org. If you want to check out her free stuff over there, and she has a fantastic workshop on Student Edge Plus, who is the sponsor of today's episode? Go to StudentEdge.org to get access to that. As per usual, please DM me on Instagram if you enjoy the show. Make sure you leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts—that really helps me out. And all the links to my projects, my books, my everything that's happening are in the show notes below and on my Instagram and TikTok bio. Now, over to Lacey. Lacey, welcome so much to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Very excited. Um, this is one of the most popular topics on this show, and money and finance. So um, you talk a lot about ETFs and a bunch of cool things. You work with young people. Um, you know, we connected through Student Edge, the sponsor of this episode. I know you're, you, you do a section on money and finance for the Student Edge course.
0: That's right. They're doing some fantastic work for young people. So we've got three courses with them, budgeting, uh, investing, investing, and i've forgotten the third one already that's embarrassing
1: <laughs> that's all right. but i mean um, yeah but i mean that's probably what we're going to have a bit of a taste of that today so we're going to go into mm-hmm. i guess a little bit of budgeting um etfs different things around money and finance how to get started as young people long-term thinking kind of the the rich dad poor dad mindset of you know time versus money sort of thing what's which one do you prefer um so before we get into all of that i'd love to just know. What did you do after high school? You know, what was the process like for you? What decision did you make? And um, we'll go from there.
0: Well, my decision process was process of elimination. I didn't really have a clear path that I wanted to follow. I didn't, you know, come out of year 10 or 11 or 12 going, oh, that's the career I want. I knew what I didn't want after lots of trial and error. And through the process of elimination, ended up with engineering because I loved problem solving. That was pretty much it. I really enjoyed maths and physics at school, and so that seemed logical. Yeah. And then first year of engineering was general. You got to try all the different types, and then at the end they said, well, you've got 11 choices. I didn't like 10 of them, so I picked the 11th one, which was chemical engineering, and that just turned out to be a really good fit. I was really lucky. So, yeah, studied chemical engineering, went to work in mining, moved from Queensland to Western Australia, where I've been based ever since, and, yeah, had a wonderful time doing that for six years, Learned a lot of problem-solving methodology stuff, and then had a kind quarter-life crisis and decided, oh my yeah. gosh, I need to do something
1: different. <laughs> so you, because this is interesting, right? Because you said you kind of just jumped into engineering off a bit of a whim. Oh, I like problem solving. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess you, you got lucky that it worked out for you and you enjoyed it. Um, so, and then you worked for six years in mining. So you got you know, you good money. I imagine you saved a bit, you were learning a lot. Um, and then you had a bit of a quarter-life quarter crisis. Do you think... There was luck involved do you think you were naturally attracted to this or was it a bit of both like how did you because a lot of people would love to know Lacey, how did you just choose your degree and then just love it from the get-go because that's what people want really
0: well it is it is it's lucky is more than anything else i don't think it was through good planning it was
1: Mm. just
0: feeling like um i'm going to give this a shot i was fully prepared for if i didn't like it to pull out or to change course yeah. it was just fortunate that i really liked it so i think that's the first thing is if you're not really sure find something that's likely the second thing was mm. i did um work experience my dad organized for me to go for a week into a civil engineering firm so i got to see what engineers did And I got to talk to this uh, gentleman who was nearly at retirement. So he had all these fantastic stories about these projects he'd been on. I was like, oh, that sounds great. Um, So I didn't like civil engineering in the end. That wasn't for me. But the idea of the problem solving was what really caught my attention. But I didn't have, you know, family, friends or anyone like that to talk to. I didn't really, my parents weren't engineers. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually, I don't think I knew any engineers. So it was just a stab in the dark. But knowing that it was better to try something give it a shot. And if it didn't work out, then I wouldn't really have lost anything. I could switch to another degree. That's, that's pretty much where yeah. I started.
1: Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I love that. I think um, it's, I mean, it's very great that you got to, you know, do something you love from an early age. I think that's really what a lot of the listeners of the show are kind of looking for. Um, but I guess switching to more money and finance, like how did you go from obviously chemical engineer in the mind to now what you're doing with the money and finance space, obviously a big shift in career. You mentioned you had a quarter life crisis. Do you want to take us through that?
0: Yeah, so it, it was. It's a. It feels like a one hundred and eighty degree turn, right? Uh, and a lot of people go, "Wow, how did?" How- you end up here. It's not normal, I don't think. Um, look, the quarter life crisis was a, just a confluence of things that happened in quick succession. There three things. The first one was I worked really hard. I thought I wanted to be CEO. I really did. I didn't really know where. I just wanted to be at the top. And I was like, I'll work hard. I was doing this fantastic role doing change management, which is really energy intensive. And I didn't take a holiday for about eighteen months, and I was working weekends, mm. so I was. Really tired and you think you're invincible in your twenties and it turned out yeah, it wasn't. Did. Yeah, I got really sick. Look, yeah. it turned out to be a virus. So I probably would have got sick anyway, but because I was so run down, I was bedridden for five weeks. And in week four, I was I lying think. there going, is yeah, it was awful. Uh, I was going, uh. is this my life now? Is this, is this how my life's going to be? And you know, I, it was that moment of, um, I'm not invincible. I need to look after myself and this working mm. yourself. You know, slogging your guts out in the hope of promotion is not sustainable without taking some break and looking after your your health. So that was the first point of realization. I was like, oh, I can't keep doing this forever because that's not what life's about. About six months later, something very sad happened. My little sister Megan ended her life. She'd had depression for about six years. She was twenty four. I was twenty six. Wow. And losing someone who I loved in that way by choice was really really hard and again it was that moment of is this what life's all about life's short what if I went under a bus tomorrow would I be happy with what my life's been like would I feel like I've missed out on things and I think that's just one of those things that happens when you lose someone you love you have that introspection of what's important to you so that on the back of getting sick uh, sort of was like two signs from the universe. And then the third sign was I got promoted. And I thought getting promoted was going to solve all my problems. I got promoted to superintendent. I was still quite young, still 26. That's young to have a team and to manage people that were twice my age as well as a lot of apprentices it was an interesting job but I thought it was going to make me autonomous turns out every level you go up in a big company you're just more meat in the sandwich (laughs) you don't Mm, ever get to set the agenda really (laughs) Um, and so that was like oh I've been promoted I thought this was going to fix everything so those three things made me go well this is silly so I, I didn't decide necessarily to go into financial education straight away I decided to resign and redesign my life. And I'd read The 4-Hour Workweek, which is a very popular book by Tim Ferriss, and had heard about mini retirements. I thought, that sounds great. So for three years, I would work six months over winter and have the six months of summer off with my partner. We'd go live down in Margaret River, which is south of Perth. It was fabulous. And all my friends were going how come you can afford not to work, Lacey? This is not fair. And, of course, it was because I had started saving half of every dollar when I was 10, started investing when I was 19. I hadn't quite reached financial independence yet at that point, but I was well on my way starting to earn some passive income and I had an impressive amount of savings. Yeah. And I said, well, what have you all been doing with your money? When my mates were asking, they were like, well, we've got car loans and credit card debt. i was like, "Ah, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I bought assets. <laughs> and that was the first time that I realised not everybody had appreciating that. Appreciating assets. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Things that go up in value and pay you an income. And it was just mm. luck that like I won the ovarian lottery. My mum taught me and not everybody else has got a mum like mine. Um, so that's where money mm. school came from. And that was where I kind of found that purpose of, look, everybody just needs to know these basics. None of it's hard. None of it's really complicated. There's just a few fundamental principles. And if we can get all young people to learn about that, I am thrilled about the idea of young people feeling empowered having more time available, not exchanging their time for a job that maybe they don't love, but going and working on these passion projects and these big problems. We mm. need young people working on the big problems, and I think that's the way we're going to get people there.
1: Yeah, oh, I agree. I love that. That's very similar to, I mean, I, I always talk about that. Like, you know, I was lucky to have parents that they didn't harp on about money and finance, but they have definitely, you know, I've never, I've never had a brand new car up until like three years ago. And even then my mom got it through the business because it was under $30,000. And so <laughs> I've really had that mindset of, you know, while not, not invest. Don't be foolish with your money. That's kind of the mindset I had. And I got into investing and I'm learning about that stuff. And it's, it's crazy. Cause it's like, you were saying, you know, when well, were you 25, 26, when you had that conversation with your friends and it's like, yeah, if, if you've been working for a long time and you're investing all of that time, the whole um, Richest Man in Babylon, which is a great book, all about yeah. saving 10%. And it's, there's no, no you know, sneaky investing or anything. It's super simple, just saving 10%. That compounded over you know, 6, 7, 10, 20, 30 years can be absolutely game-changing. And exactly. I mean, you're right. If we can get this message across to so many young people, you can, I honestly think you could change the entire environment of Australia.
0: Mm, be delightful. I really get excited about the thought of young people being able to choose how they spend their time earlier in life.
1: It's got huge potential. Mm. Amazing. Well, I mean, that's the why, you know, it's a very powerful way that we've seen from you, which is awesome. But it's going into the how, like what do you teach at your workshops and, you know, on the student edge course, you'd mentioned budgeting and stuff. How do you begin? Yeah. Like, what is the first thing you want to get across to young people when it comes to money and finance? So look,
0: there's only three rules i think most of the you know you've talked about the richest man in babylon we've got the barefoot investor we've got rich dad porter we've got some fantastic books there's lots of education out there a lot of it can be quite prescriptive like you must save x percent or you must buy this particular investment i'd like everyone to think of it more as a choose your own adventure story and i think there's really only three basic rules the first one is save. so if you think about the student edge courses this is the budgeting one don't overspend that's it in has to be bigger than what's out. And and really, I tell people, you need to be paying yourself first. See saving as paying yourself first. So that's the first thing. Yes. Now, the percentage, up to you. If you want to go to the Saving Olympics, the winners would be like the people who save more than 90% of their after-tax income. There are those people out there. Yep. They're aiming to get to financial independence in like five years, and they're living really frugally. And then you've got that well, way- 15% down the other end.
1: What I would say is when you're young, you can save a big percentage because you're not paying rent. You're not paying for a car. You're not paying for all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you're in a position where you, you should be able to save very comfortably at least 40%, in my opinion, depending on your scenario. Mm-hmm. But I think most people can aim for 40%. You know, we teach the minimum needs to be 10%, but mm-hmm. the higher you can go, the better.
0: Exactly. And honestly, it becomes a habit, right? So I started saving half yes. of every dollar I was 10. I don't even think about it now. It's just, it's not even in my brain. It just happens. But I think the secret with half. saving is automation. Yeah, I still save half. It's just a habit. Wow. It's just what I do. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, wow. it just, you get to a point where, um, like I've been doing it for 29 years, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. but I do think automation is the secret with it. We, you know, saving doesn't have to be like diet and fitness. You know, you don't have to do this mm-hmm. every day. You can set up your system so it's automated, so your paycheck comes in, and if you've got a company that will let you split your pay, you send it off to that savings account straight away so you can't even see it, but if not, do an automatic transfer. Have that account isolated so it's hard to get Mm. to, not connected to cards, Mm. hide it on your online banking, just switch that toggle over. And then it's out of sight, out of mind. You're not fighting that desire for your body to get feel-good chemicals, which is what happens when you spend. So if you save first, mm. then spend with impunity. Spend whatever's left. Cover what you need. Um, but the money will yeah. always be there if you've saved it and you find you're having to eat baked beans on toast every night <laughs> or you're worried about your rent. You can always get it back once it's spent, it's gone. So that's the first thing, save, yeah. number one. So super simple. You can think of it as pay yourself first if it makes you feel better. The second yeah. one is buy Before after. Before you do so, And that's yeah. that new of you- course.
1: Yep. Before you go into the second one, I wanted to really, really um, highlight the point because I talk about all the time is the automation like saving is so I'm not a good saver, but I automated it and I set it up 18 months ago and it's been running on autopilot. And it's like, especially if you're in a job where you have a wage. And so every two weeks you get paid a thousand dollars, let's say you can immediately transfer from your main bank account to a separate bank account, set up an automation every two weeks, take $300 from my account and put it here and you never see it. Out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. And so I do think yeah. that's exactly the, the strategy I use. I bank with Commonwealth Bank. I then put my savings in ANZ. Um, I have the ANZ app on my phone, but it's not, I have to Google, I have to search for it. I've got to log in. It's, I can access it, but I don't have a card or anything. So it is a little bit more difficult than my main bank account. But the most important thing is I just can't see the figures there in my face every time I open my app. So I think that's a really big one. At bare minimum, create a separate bank account. The next step would be create a separate bank account with a separate bank because that's when you can really start to send off your money into different directions. And if you can't, if you get paid, you know, different amounts each week, then you might have to do it manually. And that's just, you know, some time you've got to set aside. But if you can automate it, that is a massive game changer.
0: Exactly. And I think that point about having it somewhere where it's not automatically connected to your normal spending accounts is that you're creating like a short circuit. So I go, oh, I want to spend some money. If I want to get that amount out of savings. I've got to think about it for a moment. Like you said, I've got to download that app or I've got to go physically into the bank or I've got to click unhide on my toggle. Mm. It's just what you're trying to do is create a circuit breaker that makes you go, is this wasteful? Or is this purposeful spending? Am I doing this for the right Mm. reasons? That's what you're trying to do. It's too easy these days when it's in your main spending account to just tap and go. It's too simple. And that's designed that way. It's designed to be frictionless. So, yeah, you are creating a system that makes it hard to undo the saving, and I think that's where the secret lies.
1: Absolutely. But I mean, yeah, that's, that's step number one. And again, The Richest Man in Babylon is a great book that teaches you the mindset of like saving half of every dollar or in The Richest Man in Babylon's case, I think it's just 10%, like 10%. So you can see if you're doing more than that, it's crazy. And I mean, obviously we've got super, which is great in Australia, but you know, you should be really saving more on that and do you like do you do any other accounts like i like the splurge account from the barefoot investor i love that concept for young people it just gives you that that dopamine hit you said that we're craving for so you can still get it but you're also saving at the same time
0: yeah look i think for for if you've saved right whatever's left is yours to spend with impunity now i have I, i guess um i'm inclined because i like maths i've got a very good feel for how much i need as living costs And so I know how much I've got. So I actually, rather than creating a budget and splitting them out, I budget by bank balance, the four Bs, that's what I call it, budget by bank balance. And when I can see I've got money in the account then I like spend on whatever I like, I know I've got, you know, everything else covered. I don't really overthink it. And I think that's where some people can find overwhelming. Now, that works because I've got more money than I need. When, you, mm. when you're tight, when, you, when you're close to the amount that you've got coming in is kind of what you need to sustain your living at a reasonable level. And I'm not talking about, well, I won't be able to afford a particular type of handbag or this holiday. I'm talking about I need my rent covered. I need my food covered. Mm. I need my transport covered, basic clothing. When that's close, it can be really hard to squeeze more out. Don't beat yourself up if that's the case. Have that system set up, and even if you're only transferring a few percent as your savings at the moment, as your income grows, grow that first. Make that savings grow. Mm. But, but um, having that understanding of what you need is more important, you know, for your base costs, and then your splurge account might be small. You know, you might not have yeah. much. But having a little bit, I do think it's important because life's short. You never know when it's going to yeah. end. There's no point. You know, like the the extreme frugality thing is great for some people. It never worked for me because... Yeah. I want to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> oh, exactly. Of it's not that.
1: realistic. I don't I don't push yeah. that message because it's like, well, while you're young, you want to have as much fun as you can. So it's like don't sacrifice your entire youth. Um, you know, you can I think you can do both. You're well and you can exactly. do both if you're smart about it and you put in the work and you understand that you've got a good money mindset. And I think percentage is important because you mentioned when you get a raise, make sure you match the percentage or you raise your percentage. But that's a good thing about it. if you're saving 30%, when you get a raise, you just save more money as well, because it's based by percentage. So instead of, you know, saving, I want to save $200 a week, you want to save 30% a week or 20% because that's, I'm big on lifestyle inflation. I really push that message because right now, um, the listeners of the show will be experimenting massive amounts of lifestyle inflation over the next five years as they finish high school. Then they get their first part-time job. Then they get a full-time job. Then they get a manager position (laughs) position. and suddenly from five, five years ago, they were earning nothing. Now they're on 150 K. It's like, you've got to be able to understand. The emotional stuff happening in your brain when that stuff happens, and you've got to be prepared for that exactly. because you want to match the percentage or make sure that you're saving, and you're not just you know you get a, you get a raise, you get a nice car because that's where it can exactly. be a trap.
0: And I think for that, my advice on that um, comfort creep or lifestyle inflation is yeah. pick your thing, pick one or two things that give you satisfaction that are like. for So for me, it was an outdoor sofa. <laughs> I had this really fancy outdoor sofa, and like I'm like that's my thing. When I get there, you know, and you know what, I waited 19 years before I bought it. But have your one <laughs> thing. Have, have your thing that you love. If it's a particular sport or it's a particular hobby or it's a particular type of clothing or a car, have your thing. But don't have all the things. Just mm. pick one or two. That lifestyle creep becomes a problem because you go, well, I want it all now. And then mm-hmm. you chew up those savings that it was supposed to be growing for you. And I think the point is, if you do it earlier, the saving and the investing, you can have those things later. It's delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, it makes it so much more enjoyable. I adore my outdoor sofa now. I can't get enough of it. The joy is still there. I've had it for over a yeah. year. And I still go. I well,
1: do you know this what this is? is? This is we because I teach uh, I do a two-hour money and finance section at empower you, which is a life skills program. Um, I'm a speaker at, and we do a, we do a two-hour money and finance section. And about 30 minutes of that two hours, is a flip chart around delayed gratification, and we really I, I I tell stories around Avengers and like Call of Duty to get a, get a point get this point across, and it's called dream struggle prize. It means in order to appreciate the prize, we have to have a dream, but we have to go through the struggle. And so you love the sofa because you went through the struggle of trying to acquire it. Therefore, you have a A lot of affection towards it because you've been through that struggle if someone just gave it to you you wouldn't appreciate it as much and so that really ties in heavily with delayed gratification and when it comes to money and finance if you want to be financially free you have to appreciate delayed gratification
0: exactly and pick those one or two things and make a big deal out of them and enjoy the daydreaming while you're waiting to get there and yeah it Mm. it really pays dividends and that ability to derive joy out of what you buy
1: absolutely well look that's great that's step number one so what's step number two
0: so the second thing is once you've done that saving and first of all you're going to have some savings in a buffer fund you know some some cash that you can access in an emergency and that should stay cash right because sometimes things are going to go wrong cars break down or yeah you lose your job or you get injured you do need some cash anything above that limit you want to invest now when i say invest i mean buy assets now there are accountants listening. I'm sorry. I'm about to butcher your definition of assets. I mm-hmm. subscribe to the Robert Kiyosaki version, the rich dad, poor dad version, which is assets put money in your pocket. And the reason yep. for that is to clarify. If you want to, get
1: to-, to clarify, yes. to list- sorry, just to clarify yeah. to listeners, when we say assets from an accounting perspective, people would say like a car is an asset because it's something mm-hmm. that you could sell. You could sell it now for $20,000, or but we would say it's not an asset because it's taking money out of your account instead of putting money into your account. It's a depreciation a- asset. And so what you're saying here, the Robert Kiyosaki, which is a rich dad, poor dad method, is more assets are something that puts money into your account and appreciates rather than depreciates. Is that correct?
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. Perfect mm. summary. And, you know, the bank calls it an asset because the bank can sell it. They don't need to use that car, you know, if you don't pay yes. your debt. The bank goes, well, I'll just sell your car. That's an asset for me. That's from their perspective. Mm. The technical definition of asset doesn't have, uh, you know, a point of view. For your point of view, to make it simple, a pragmatic definition is I think that asset puts money in your pocket. I think that works really well. And particularly if you want to get to financial independence because... When we get to financial independence, it's that idea of having a cash flow from our assets. So we have that, you know, rent coming off properties, dividends coming off shares, coupons coming off bonds, even interest coming off cash in the bank. Those are the Mm. things that fund your lifestyle and mean you don't have to work as many hours to get the money that you need to cover your lifestyle costs. And eventually you don't Mm. have to work at all if you don't want to. So if you buy things that don't produce that cash flow, you're not getting closer to financial independence, You're probably getting further away in a lot of cases, especially in like the car's a great Absolutely. example. You're signing up to pay uh, registration, insurance, petrol, maintenance. It's going to take money out of your pocket. So you've yeah. got to be really cognizant of buying. When we say investing, I think buying assets is the way I word it so that people think about, well, mm. what's an asset for me? So I've mentioned those yeah, few and- types of assets, but that, that's what you're sort of aiming to do, buy those.
1: Yeah, and I mean the car is a great example. I talk about a brand new car is one of, the, in my opinion, one of the worst investments a young person can make. Um, not to say obviously you need a car, but secondhand cars are great nowadays. It, we could even say my car could be an appreciating, appreciating asset. I reckon I could sell it for the same price I bought it for three years ago. I honestly reckon that yeah. because of the market, and the, I got a really good, bit, a really good buy. It served me well. I've had no problems with it. It's well maintained and everything. I think I could sell it for the same price. So it's not. You can't get a car. It's just be smart with what you want to do with that. So you understand when you get a car, you sign up with a you sign up for interest, which means you're going to be paying whatever amount of interest. They say the average $30,000 car costs 30, $37,000 after interest, I think. So you're paying $7,000 on in interest, which is insane. I don't think we realize how much that is. And I don't think a lot of people realize that when they're signing up for a car loan.
0: Well, and even a credit card, you know. So I saw a great example the other day. Credit cards, you know. Uh, And this will segue into point three later. Uh, 18% interest, 10 grand on that. If you paid minimum repayments, take you 44 years to pay it off. You'd pay 36 grand back. And that's a pretty moderate amount. So, yeah, whenever you sign up for interest, you're paying more. And the point is, future you has to spend less you don't just pay mm. the sticker price. You pay the sticker price plus a little bit. Now, we are in a very unusual time with cars at the market. There's a particular shortage caused by COVID and all the delays. Mm. This would be the first time in history that I've seen car prices on average go up. <laughs> Mm. So I don't think it's going to be sustainable. But, yeah, buying the cheapest, safest car your ego can afford is a very good way to go. That's a good Um, one.
1: Your ego can afford.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm pretty happy uh, driving anything that's got decent airbags and my kids are safe in. Um, That's cool with me. It doesn't have to be flashy. But that said, there are going to be people out there who derive a lot of joy from cars. That's fine. If that's your thing, pick your thing. Budget for it accordingly. But don't put it into your independence assets. It's not... A financial independence asset, it's part of your spending. You need to treat it accordingly and make it part of your budget.
1: Absolutely. So you spoke about um, appreciation. You kind of listed them off really quickly before. You listed bonds, mm-hmm. dividends, you know, ETFs, um, all that sort of stuff. What are the main ones you recommend young people start to look into when it comes to investing?
0: Okay. So now the first thing I'll say is investing is a choose-your-own-adventure story. So you will meet people who are like, oh, I can't stand shares. It's gambling and do property. Mm. And then you'll meet people who are like, oh, who would pick shares? There's nothing tangible. You want to pick property because it's like bricks and mortar. There's so much misguided advice. It's intended well. The point is it's not going to be the same for everybody. So you need to take a bit of time before you pick your type of investment that you want to go through to really understand what you find risky and would cause you to lose sleep, what you enjoy because each different type of asset has different time requirements and different knowledge requirements and really take the time to explore that. There's lots of wonderful ways to do that. But here's the the main headlines, I think. So the safest... Safest option. Nothing's ever 100% safe, but the, the bank because, does yeah. have a guarantee at the moment because the government will guarantee up to $250,000 in the bank if we have a financial collapse, unless bail-in laws mm. get exercised. And let's hope that doesn't happen because we're really in the poo if that happens. Um, mm. but putting cash in the bank, earning interest is like, you know, it used to be term deposits. When I was a kid, I was earning 10% interest. You're now lucky if you can get 1%. It's still money you oh, didn't I have mean, to exchange time. money right now. Yeah, well, with inflation, we effectively are. Yeah. So it's a bit depressing. (laughs) but if interest Mm. rates come up and and remember that's how superannuation was designed in the late 80s interest rates were 15 percent on your savings so people could just save 600 Mm. grand and then they would live off you know a decent 40 grand a year you know they did a great job off that it's not really feasible Mm. now and that's why people say although cash is technically going to generate an income for you it's not going to do it very quickly it's going to take a very long time but it is considered the safest option then you've got bonds so bonds is where instead of you putting money in the bank you become the bank for somebody else so Mm. it's usually a government or a company but it's a way that the governments or companies raise capital they issue basically a promissory note it's like a debt and they say we'll pay you back that that amount so uh, you, you loan them a hundred dollars we'll pay you back the hundred dollars at this set, certain time later on but in the meantime we're going to pay you coupons which is like interest it is considered to be a relatively safe option, uh, depending on mm. who it is, of course. You know, you can imagine if you wanted to loan something to, say, a government that was likely to go through a coup, you might not be considering that very safe. Um, in Australia, mm. less likely, I would suggest. Um, we might have some voting upheaval, but less likely to have a coup. Um but, you know, in companies, it's the same thing. You want to be a bit sensible. But you get these coupons paid and they can be, you know, once every 12 months or once every six months. Um, and that's the cash flow that you get. Now, they're a bit, usually a bit higher than interest rates but less than, say, the share market would give you. And that's, I guess, the third yes. option that most people are very excited about. And I would be too if I was a young person because investing in shares doesn't require debt. You can start with as little as a few hundred dollars. And, yes, I know there are apps out Mm. there that allow you to start with tiny amounts of money. I would suggest it's worth trying to find ways for you to control the shares that you own rather than going through those apps and maybe aiming to save $500 and starting there. The reason why $500 Mm. is okay now is because there's limits on what you can do on certain transactions in different platforms but also because brokerage, that's the fee that you pay whenever you transact on a share, when you buy or sell it. We're not yelling down the phone mm. anymore. It's not the nineteen eighties. Buy, buy, sell, sell. We're not paying a human.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: it's now tiny amounts of money. Very cheap to trade. So it used to be well, you didn't want to trade anything less than, say, ten thousand dollars worth of shares because you're gonna pay a few hundred dollars brokerage. Now it's less than ten bucks brokerage. You can buy a small parcel yeah. of shares. And that's when because you buy it was all a piece automated through software. Exactly. So we don't have any of this buy buy sell sell, which is lovely. But mm. <laughs> so, you know, poor stock to clarify market,
1: the buy buy. You know, if you've seen Wolf of Wall Street, that's the buy buy sell yeah. sell. That's like exactly. you call up the brokerage, you say you want you want to sell this. It costs you a few hundred dollars just to sell that, which is why you're not because he's that person. Then has to log it and track it all. Whereas now it's just done automatically through software, so you pay much more minimal fees, which is exciting exactly. because it means now the everyday person can get in the stock market instead of just the wealthy.
0: Exactly, and you don't have to save up massive amounts of capital. You can buy a few shares each month. It's much more feasible. It's kind of like a savings strategy rather than this, save up a big water cash and buy. Um, And, of Mm. course, when you buy shares, you're buying a tiny piece of a company, and what we hope is the shares are going to say, well, the company is going to say, hey, thank you for being a shareholder. We've had a profit here. Have some of the dividends. That's the sharing Mm. of the profits back with the shareholders. Of course, there's lots Mm. of different options with shares. You can buy an individual company. You can buy an exchange-traded fund or listed investment company, which is where you buy, like, one share. From, and then you kind of own a tiny piece of all the shares that are owned yeah. by that organisation, whether it's a fund or a company. Yeah. And so it's a diversity strategy.
1: Yeah. Do you know what I use for that? And feel free to use this. This is an, an original mm-hmm. of mine. Basically, uh-huh. if you were to buy like one share from a company, it's like going to a party with like just a Mars bar, and you just hand up Mars bars. And what if, if people don't like Mars bars? Then you've stuffed up. But if everyone loves it, then you look like a hero. Whereas mm-hmm. getting the ETF is like bringing a box of favourites. You've got a little bit of everything, and so that way there's enough Ooh, for everyone. I love that. And so that's Genius. kind of like the way I say it. It's like if you're investing into an ETF, you're investing into a small portion of a lot of different companies on the hope that all those companies are going to increase in value. And it's usually typically a bit of a safe option because if one company tanks, you haven't lost all your money. Um, but also it means you probably won't make quite as high of a return. And so it depends on your mm-hmm. appetite and what you want to do as an investor.
0: Exactly. And how much time you want to spend in researching, being able to pick a low cost exchange traded fund. And that's part of the key to making that work is that exchange traded funds, are the really good ones that are out there, have very low fees. So you're not paying a premium for someone to manage that portfolio. You're just paying a small mm. fee. Um It's, it's a very quick way to get there without having to spend a lot of time on managing your portfolio. Whereas if you wanted to go off and pick a dozen companies, you've got to go research all of those companies and all of those markets and, and doing that, you're trying to exactly like you said, cover when someone doesn't, someone doesn't do well and someone does do well and it averages out. Um, it's kind of like, I always think of an ETF as, like, you're basically betting on capitalism. You're saying capitalism is going to work because yeah. <laughs> most ETFs are going to go up over time. Um, so those yeah. are great options. I love shares for that. And then, of course, the the big one is property, which is an Australian... Mm. Love story, isn't it? Uh, everybody thinks yeah. about property as being amazing. And look, I, I started with property when I was nineteen, bought my first little two by one unit, um, and it was the beginning of my financial independence journey. I just had very good timing. It was back in two thousand and one, and I got in just before a boom, um, and it was the property price doubled in under a year. That's just luck. That wasn't by design. Um, mm. I feel very fortunate. And of course, we see house prices going all over the place. The important point for I think young people thinking about investing in property is that it requires taking on debt most of the time not many of us are going Mm. to be able to save up a couple hundred grand we're just going to have to save up the deposit and then take a loan and so you'd want to be very confident that you're able to meet that debt commitment whether by letting out you know renting the property or through Mm. having a very stable income before you do it but that said It's still a great option. I just would recommend people focus on the asset increasing in value and getting the rent, not on the negative gearing. We've got a really weird mentality in Australia. It's it's unusual. I haven't seen it anywhere else where we love negative gearing. We hate tax. Paying tax means you made money. If you've got negative gearing, it means you lost money. (laughs) <laughs> um, except when you've got the theoretical depreciation being a big part of that. So I think it's really important that you really understand how the property is going to make you money before you commit to that. Still a wonderful vehicle and, and still accessible for young people.
1: Absolutely. And did you just, did you also explain what negative gearing is like really quickly? Because I feel like this is something yeah. young Australians hear all the time. My parents tried to explain that to me. I've only <laughs> feel like now I've just got a comp- comprehension of what it actually means. Did you want to take us through how you explain that?
0: Yeah, sure. So when you buy a property, it has a lot of costs with it, right? You're going to pay the mortgage, probably. You're going to be paying rates, insurance. You're going to be paying for water, all that kind of stuff. The cost of Mm. owning that property is quite high. But then you've got the income that comes in the rent. Now, generally, what we're aiming for with financial independence is you want that rent to be higher than your costs. At the beginning, the mortgage is usually the highest cost. What often happens, most people when they buy a property is what's called negatively geared, which means that the costs are higher than the rent coming in. Now, mm. on that, costs can also be depreciation. So when you buy a new property, you often have a big loss that's not real. It's just this theoretical depreciation. But for established properties, it's real money. You've paid that money out. You've paid out that mortgage. You've paid out those rates. You've paid out that insurance. And if your rent doesn't cover that, where did the gap come from? It came from your pocket. Now, to incentivise people to buy investment properties, the government introduced this negative gearing policy, which is if you spend more than you made, you can take that loss, because it is a loss, it came out of your pocket, off your taxable income. Because we have marginal tax rates in Australia, the top tax bracket is the highest rate you pay. So if you're at the very top at the moment, you're paying 45% plus 2% Mm. Medicare. That's a lot of money. So people get really excited about getting some of that money back. The thing is that over the life of a typical loan, 30 years, that negative gearing, the amount you get back might only be 1% to 2% of the total cost of owning the property. feels really exciting when you get it. But what you really want to do, if you're doing it for financial purposes, like to be able to be independent, is to own the property without debt and then make money off it. Because that rent that you're going to make is money in your pocket that then substitutes your income. So what you actually want is a mm. positively geared property. Now, as I said, but most properties tend they... to be negatively geared.
1: Hmm? Yeah, and the reason they're negative gearing is because it lowers their income, correct? Which means they pay less tax. That's
0: right. Yep, you get yeah. that tax so clarify, refund check.
1: <laughs> yeah, to clarify, because yeah. this can be quite complicated if people if this is a new conversation. So you were saying high-income earners in Australia have to pay 45% tax, which means they're almost paying At every the dollar they earn, they have to pay 45 cents for every dollar to the, to the government, which is huge. Yeah. And so these people are buying properties and they're losing money on their properties. They're negative gearing it. On the balance sheet, they're losing money, but really they're not. Um, they're negative gearing it, which, make, which makes their taxable income much lower. So they might be into a, in a different bracket paying 30% tax now, which means yeah, that they've still got the appreciating property, but they're negative gearing it and they're paying less tax on the income. Is that right?
0: That's right. And now remember, we, because we've got a marginal tax rate, you're only paying that $0.45 cents on the money you made over $200,000. So right. a so, place where negative gearing makes no sense, for example, is if you're under the tax-free threshold, which is $18,200, Negative gearing doesn't matter because you're not paying any tax. You're not getting anything mm. back. You definitely want mm. a profitable property. But it's very attractive to people who are in that high tax bracket. And because of that reduction, yeah. the loss comes off the top, not at the bottom, it comes off that top. Once you're up to those high levels, people get very excited about it. Um, because yeah. it does feel nice to get some money back from the government, especially because, like, thinking about if, you've, if you're earning over 200 grand, you'd be paying a lot in tax, tens of thousands of dollars. Absolutely. Anything you can get back and feels I mean- like a bonus.
1: <laughs> well, the cool thing, what you said there about marginal tax rate, just so sort to of clarify, when I said you pay 45 cents per every dollar, you're not actually, you're only doing that over the tax rate. So let's, I mean, do you want to explain it? I don't know how to explain yeah. it too well. I should learn how to explain I'll it say, better.
0: So the principle is that we don't want people who don't make a lot of money to pay a lot of tax, do we? Because they need that money. No. So if you're not earning yes. much, right, it's not fair for you to be paying for all the roads and the hospitals. Whereas if you're making a mozza, You're making a million bucks a year. It's a pretty reasonable expectation that you would contribute more tax. That's the principle Mm -hmm. of marginal tax rates, right? We don't want to punish people on low income rates. We don't also want to punish anyone on a high income rate, but we do say you are more capable of paying more tax. And we do rely heavily on income tax in Australia. We are one of the most heavily reliant nations on it. It's something like it's more than 50% of our budget comes from um, income. It's insane. It, we are, wow. we are. I think it's either the first or second most reliant on personal income tax to fund our government budget, right? So that the government needs that money. We've got an ageing population. They've got to cover hospitals. They've got to do public housing. They've got to do roads. They've got to do schools. They've got so much stuff they have to provide. So they rely on that money. Rather than saying to everybody, it's a flat rate, you're going to pay 6%. Which I think is what it is in Ecuador or something like that. Six percent. Everybody's putting in six percent. That wouldn't be very fair, right? Right? If someone's on a very tight budget, they're earning ten grand a year, and you say you put in six percent, and then also the millionaire over here you put in six percent. Not really fair. So the yeah. idea is they have these brackets. Whichever bracket you fall into determines how much tax you pay. So the first eighteen thousand five hundred, sorry, two hundred, so eighteen grand, is tax free. Yeah. Basically, if you're earning eighteen grand or less, you don't have to pay tax. Once you get above that, you start paying marginal rates. Now I think there's five brackets at the moment. The first one's like 19%, and then it goes up to 32, and then it's 42, and then 45. So it increases as your earning increases. But the idea is that 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 only applies as you go up. So if you're within that 19% bracket, you still don't pay any tax on the first 18 grand. You only pay tax on the difference between that 18 grand and the 45,000 upper limit on that 19 cent bracket. So it's mm. not like a. So that's why when you're trying to work out what your personal tax rate is, it's not an easy piece of maths because you've got these little brackets in there. Um, there's great mm. calculators for that on the ATO website. I was about you to say.
1: Like, cause I think I, and I used to think this, if you're only $200,000 and you're paying, I don't, let's say, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it's 40%, which is pretty big, right? Mm-hmm. Or let's say a quarter of a million dollars, you're paying 40%. You're only paying 40% once you enter into that bracket. So you're still paying, is, is that correct? So you're still paying right. like all these different amounts. So it's very difficult to calculate. You'd have to know a lot of formulas or you can just Google <laughs> ca- tax calculator and just plug in the numbers. Yeah. But that's where it's like that you pay within each bracket. So you're not actually paying 40 cents to every dollar, only when above the 200,000, in the next bracket you're paying 35 cents for every dollar. And then the next bracket you're paying 25 cents or whatever it is in your country or wherever you are. That's how our system works.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's why why it's designed that way. You're trying to, only as you get those upper limits. But I think what people get upset about and they go, well, I don't even really want that pay rise because that's going to put me into this tax bracket. If you pay more tax, you make more money. Okay, yes, yes. <laughs> see it as see it as just a rite of passage. So legal minimization is fine. Avoidance not worth it. Okay, so mm. um, don't don't fall for the Australian obsession of trying to avoid tax. Pay what you legally mm. have to pay. Uh, do everything you need to do to minimise it, but don't waste your energy there. That's why I think negative gearing, it's a bonus. See it as a bonus. It's not the reason to buy. Buy the property because that's the investment for you. You know how you're going to make money out of it. See any negative gearing as a just a nice positive if you get it. But really, if you want to get to financial independence, you, you want positively geared property because you want to be earning rent. You don't want to be taking money out yeah. of your pocket. Otherwise, you've got to go to work.
1: <laughs> and negative gearing has really impacted the property market um, for young Australians as well. Like Because all these other generations above us have negative geared, it's you know risen prices and it's almost made it not impossible but very difficult for us to get in the housing market. I think where I live in Sydney, the average housing price is over a million dollars now, which is just unbelievable.
0: <gasps> That's and horrible. so I don't know yeah.
1: whereabouts are you based?
0: I'm in Perth, so we're much cheaper. <laughs> but you're yeah, exactly yeah. right in that um, you know, people have were encouraged to buy investment properties. Negative gearing was sold as this appealing thing and so therefore they bought it. And look, there's so many people who own investment properties. I think it's something like six million people in Australia own a second property. Like it's some ridiculous mm. number. That's a lot of voters. A lot of voters. So mm. what they have been given is a head start. They've been given a bonus. And the debate about whether we should abolish it or not is a big question. And that is the other thing. If you bought a property for the reason of negative gearing and then the laws change, too bad, mate. You're stuck with it. Mm. So so don't do it for that reason. See that as a bonus.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Mm. Well, look, they're the, they're the main things you can invest in. Of course, maybe we are to have a quick conversation around crypto as well. Um, that's really <laughs> hot right now. Do you consider crypto yeah. stock like, or is, or is it a whole other category?
0: look i personally don't um there's so much debate about where it fits it's still not clear whether it is i would i i personally think it's a money market asset like any other currency um mm. the major difference at the moment so so for investing purposes there's no not many crypto options out there that pay you a passive income, right? It's pretty much you own it, you sell it, you trade it. So it doesn't meet the definition of a financial independence asset for our purposes. So I don't spend too much time on it. But the debate about whether it's a commodity, whether it's a money market asset, whether it's gambling, whether it's the future investing, I I don't know. That's the big debate, right? I I tend to think of it as if you're going to put money into crypto, it needs to be money you're willing to lose. I think the problem Hmm. is that most crypto at the moment sits outside government regulation when i buy a property when i buy shares there is heavy regulation everywhere if someone does the wrong thing by me i've got recourse i can go through courts mm. people can be so sued they can go to jail with existing crypto like bitcoin and ethereum are probably the two most common examples i know there's a lot you know how many thousands of coins are there now um but they're the two really popular ones there's no legal recourse if someone does a pump and dump someone talks it up and then dumps it oh. uh, you know and the price crashes You've got no, no, that no one's coming after them. Yeah, no one's coming yeah, after them. If someone tried that on the stock market with an ASX listed company, there'd be people going to jail. And I think that's the big mm. risk for consumers. If you pick something that's outside legal jurisdiction, you know, too bad, mate. Um, that's really yeah. the, the hard part about it. So that's why I think, although it's not a problem if you want to buy it, buy it. Don't treat it as a financial independence asset. I, I sort of take mm. it out of my spending money. <laughs> doesn't yeah, really yes, so even do come I. out of like, my investing money. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like I'm doing well and I don't have heaps of money, but I'm up like 50% or 40% or something ridiculous. Yeah. And it's like, it's pretty cool. And I think I actually do think it is... Worth investing in crypto long term, just because I think it could be the future currency. And so, to have that, if you're investing now in ten years' time, when it is a future currency and it's a bit more mainstream, there could be some valid validity there. But as you said, you should be willing if you, you should be open to losing your money if you invest in crypto. If you lose it, look, it should be funny for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. And look, for me, the future, the blockchain is the exciting thing, right? The idea that we might one day have a Reserve Bank of Australian Australian cryptocurrency, an E-dollar, I think is exciting. Because at the moment, we pay 2% to the banks to manage the ledgers. If we can put Mm. a blockchain in charge of managing the Australian dollar, yes, it means it's all electronics that can control inflation, but we don't pay that 2% you know, premium as consumers anymore, that's got to be good. Mm. I'm excited about that when it becomes a mainstream process. Um, and I love the idea that we might have a Reserve Bank of Australia managing it instead of a commercial entity who operates under company law. Mm. Um, I think there's yeah. a lot of benefits for consumers. And if that happens in the next five to ten years, I'll be delighted. But, yeah, if you're going to spend money in on the concept. gambling or fun, Chuck it into crypto. You might have a good time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and the concept is like, you know, if you've got coins, you can just transfer money anywhere to anyone in the world instantly. And and so it's more of like a a world currency, even though there's different currencies in each country, you can transfer those. There's no, like, this because there's massive financial fees if you're transferring to someone overseas right now. Exactly. It takes a few days. Yeah. It, it can be big. And I think um, in terms of countries that are, the government's a bit dodgy, it does almost decentralize those governments and give the everyday person access to, like, a network, which is more trustworthy, which is what blockchain is kind of built on. So I think exactly. it is very exciting in terms of crypto. And I agree. It's like, maybe, you know, think of it, is like long-term gambling. Um, while, you know, with ETFs and stuff we are talking about before, ETFs and stuff is relatively safe. Of course, nothing's completely safe. Um, crypto is highly volatile is the word. So understand that it's volatile and if that's what you want to do. And I am pretty, you know, I do think it would be worth having, you know, a small percentage to put into high-risk things, especially while you're young. Mm. Because, well, you know, if you, even if you put 4%, 5% into high-risk items.
0: Oh, absolutely, you've got time. And if you're going to, you know, pick it over, I'd pick it over a lotto ticket. I'd pick it over a scratchy or gambling on sure. any kind of sporting. Like if you're thinking about downloading a TOB or something similar app, try crypto instead because you've got a much better chance of a payout. <laughs> mm. and, and it is something I think with new things, the more we get familiar with them, the more we're going to be comfortable with them later. So just sticking your head in the sand is probably not the answer either. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Who's, who knows where it could go? Just be very aware of what you're doing and um, I think security is a big thing too. Make sure if you're going to go into crypto, you need to look at things like what cold storage means Um, because unfortunately Mm. one of the things that's the advantage with the banks and that security is if someone steals money out of your account through one of the major banks, they will help you. A lot of the coin exchanges just go too bad, you know, people who get hacked even when they've got two-factor authentication and complicated passwords and all that sort of stuff. Do make sure that you've had a look at what you're going to do for security so that you don't lose what you've accumulated through some hacking because again there's no recourse mm. the companies that operate those exchanges have written their terms and conditions so that it's kind of like it's the buyer beware and uh you don't get the same yeah. support that you do as with a bank so just be aware of that
1: yeah yeah so there's ups and downs you don't get the guarantees that the banks offer so understand that and um you know take it at your own risk but yeah, yeah i mean look Lacey this has been a great conversation i think it's been jam-packed in the amount of time we've had it's been jam-packed with incredible information they're the three steps did you want to sort of summarize all three steps in like two well minutes the already? last one i
0: didn't last one i didn't get oh, too much which is avoid that's okay it's avoid bad debt we'll keep that very simple that's actually the third um student edge course was on buy now pay later i've remembered now um yes but avoid bad debt if you're going to um use debt to buy liabilities try not to pay any interest if you're paying interest you probably couldn't afford mm-hmm. it that's it but yeah to go back and summarize yep. safe so pay yourself first Buy assets. Once you've filled up that buffer fund, whatever's left over, put that into assets that are going to pay you, so that you can then work less and become time rich, and then avoid bad debt if you can. That's borrowing to buy liabilities. That's it.
1: And what I will say is, I don't know if you saw this, but Afterpay just released that you can now Afterpay a night out on the town, which oh, is gosh. so dangerous. So, like, if so, if you oh. if, you're gonna, if you can't afford to go out um, and you want to like spend two hundred bucks on drinks or something, now Afterpay will allow you to do that. And I'm like. This is where oh, you really have to put terrifying. it in head, like, guys, that is dangerous for young people. So, And that's bad debt, um, it is. what we're talking about. So avoid going into bad debt. I know mm-hmm. Afterpay is sexy and it can be great if you're in control of your money, but it'll it'll sneak up on you. You'll naturally spend more money than you would without it. And so just be aware that this is how the company makes money. You know, Afterpay is a exactly. billion-dollar company. It's over $30 billion. It's an Australian company. Um, it makes money off bad debt. So understand, exactly. you know, and Australians, in my opinion, are pretty are pretty easy to get into bad debt, like with gambling and everything. We're the number one gamblers in the world. We spend our money quite a bit. So just be conscious of that. Um, you've heard Lacey's story how, you know, what you were 20, 26 and you were not financially free, but you were close. And, you know, it's not that hard. It's just delayed gratification, following the steps you said and putting in the work.
0: Exactly, and And recognizing that it will take everybody a different amount of time. If you haven't started yet, that's okay. My mum started at 49. She got there at 63. Mm. It's never too late. But the sooner you start, Mm. the sooner you get that power of compounding on your side, the sooner you become time rich. And then you can go solve all our problems, which is what we want you to do.
1: yes exactly the you know the future's in our hands so Lacey, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for coming on the show guys as a reminder if you want to check out Lacey's course in much more detail and visually where she breaks everything down you can go check that out on student edge plus go to studentedge.org that's super great it's um really well priced as well i'm a big you know big fan of student edge and that's how we actually that's how we met they introduced each other um but before we jump off where can people find you if they want to find out more come along to your workshops and see more about what you do where's the best place to go
0: Uh, moneyschool.org.au if you just google money school it should pop up um come and say hi i've got a free course for anyone who's struggling with debt okay so if anyone on here has gone this sounds great Lacey, but i'm in debt please start there. free course how to get Mm. out of debt that's my favorite one to promote
1: (laughs) awesome all right guys go take advantage of that make sure you reach out to us if you have any questions but otherwise Lacey, thank you so much for coming on the show
0: well thanks for having me byron i've loved it